If you'll go to uh, Romans 1, this sets uh, just a really good, solid historical background to what Paul would address to the Roman culture, which was invasive and pervasive and actually perverted. It had an effect on an entire society, which ultimately has been cited historically as its fall because of the way that it chose to go. But Paul addresses this in the first chapter of Romans. And if you've been in your Bible studies for a length of time, you'll know that this is very important for the case that Paul begins to lay out in Romans with regard to repentance, with regard to acknowledging sin, with regard to God's evidentiary grace and mercy available to all. And so in the 18th verse is where I'm going to take us right now in chapter 1. It's just a preface right now. It says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. The suppression of truth means that it's bound, it's hidden, it's intentionally walked around or buried. We're finding that to be true in media today, where it's not what we know we need to hear, it's what the culture wants us to hear and to believe. And so Paul continues on citing that from the beginning God had an altogether reason for manifesting himself through all creation. Because remember the Romans were steeped in idol worship, secularism, humanism. And so they had multiple gods that they worshipped, bowed down to, paid tribute to. And so as he continues with regard to this, it says in verse 19, which is very reassuring, but it's also very indicting. No government's going to have an opportunity to excuse themselves with regard to the oversight of their people. And people under governments will not have an excuse either as to why obedience to a government was greater than obedience to the God who created governments for the purpose of establishing civil order. But mostly, it was to guarantee that nations would have liberty. People would be able to seek the face of God on the terms of God. So here we go, speaking of nature. Because what may be known of God is manifest in them. So it's not what you would call philosophical or esoterical. It is actually fundamental that within each person there is a conviction to the heart and a conscience in the mind. That is to guarantee that there is no misunderstanding about what God has made obvious, both within a person and what a person is able to experience in the realm of their humanity on a place called the earth, in specific locations that have geographical and political names. It says, you can know, it says it's manifest in them, for God has shown it to them, and it says this, for since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen. The attributes of God, we can probably say, are the manifested characteristics, the specific kinds of things that we know about God as he was revealed through Jesus, as he was revealed through visitations to men of old. And it says that his invisible attributes, they're clearly seeing, and it says being understood by the things that are made. The problem is that when we take our eyes off the fact that God has made all things, 
but that all things made are not to be worshipped like him, but appreciated through him, we have a correction. It says that in this, these things that have been made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. That's the excuse clause. You don't have it. None of us do. Canada doesn't have it. The United States doesn't have it. Russia, China, name them all. No one is with an excuse based on what God says is in a man and based on what he says men shall know on what it is they see and hear. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts and their foolish hearts, it says, were darkened. And so what at one time was a heart that was always meant to be responsive to God becomes foolish, ignoring God. The Psalms declares in 14.1, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt, the scriptures say. They have done abominable works. There is none who does good. And I put in this a parenthesis saying atheism, the disbelief in God and the word of God. Let me continue. Their foolish hearts were darkened, verse 22, professing to be wise, they became fools. And it says they changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. Therefore, God also gave them up to uncleanness. This is indicative of if a man, woman, child pursues the lusts of their flesh in what is the carnal enticement, then there's an inevitability that as you draw farther from God, there's a release of that person to basically pursue what it is they want that's contrary to God. It is an explanation as to how people end up the way that they can find themselves distant from God and in a perpetual state of sinning. It's because by their own choice and they're ignoring the word of God and what is the conviction about God, it's irrelevant to them. As a result of that, there becomes idol worship. It's a very popular word these days. Giving them up to be uncleanness in the lusts of their heart, and it says to dishonor their bodies among themselves. The dishonoring of the bodies is actually what we see now that is being endorsed by culture. It's not new. It just has visited us like it has perhaps thousands of years before, in which now there is legislation that reinforces what God does not want for any to participate in. It says in verse 23 that in this exchange of the truth of God for the lie, worshiping and serving the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever, amen, verse 26, for this reason, it says that God gave them up to vile passions, for even their women exchanged the natural use of what is against nature. Likewise, also the men leaving the natural use of the woman burned in their lusts for um, one another, men with men committing what is shameful and receiving in themselves the penalty of their error, which was due. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting, being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness. They are whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful, knowing the righteous judgment of God that those who practice such things are deserving of death not only do the same, but also approve of those 
who practice them. Romans 1, verses 18 through the close right now, is what you'd call a doctrinal anchor, which describes a culture that moves from God and desires to culture its own spirituality embedded in carnality. God says there's a judgment. It has been said, and I do believe, that HIV is one of those predicaments, those outcomes. There are other kinds of things as well, diseases that were very much manifested from the mid-60s clear through the 70s. It actually was a mandated course. I remember taking it. We both were taking courses in high school dealing with drug use. My dad was a teacher of that and human sexuality. He was also a teacher of that. He was a very good teacher. Enjoyed sitting under him. And so that was a result of a rebellious generation of the 60s. I'm on the tail end of that, but it had its spillover into my generation. For I remember the direction of young people that moved towards drugs and alcohol and sexuality, promiscuity. I remember all of that very, very well. And it directly linked to rebellion against God. And I believe it was on the coattails of also when prayer was removed and the sanctioning or the allowance of little babies to be taken from the womb and killed. Are we there yet as far as explaining where this is going? Not yet. I want to be able to cite some things that is well God made known prophetically. So I want to take you now to Jeremiah 18. So you'll go back a ways. And the reason that I'm going here because it's picture language describing the sovereignty of a God who allows us to see him as a creator with hands on his artistic objects. In 18, I'm going to pick it up pretty much right at the beginning. It says, The word which came to Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, Arise and go down to the potter's house, and there I will cause you to hear my words. Then I went down to the potter's house, and there he was making something at the wheel. So remember, this is a picture. It's a pictograph of God being perceived as the potter making something. And the vessel that he made of clay was marred in the hand of the potter. So he made it again into another vessel. And it seemed good to the potter to make. Then the word of the Lord came to me saying, O house of Israel, can I not do with you as this potter, says the Lord? Look, as the clay is in the potter's hands, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. The instant I speak concerning a nation and concerning a kingdom, to pluck it, to pull down, and to destroy it, if that nation against whom I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I thought to bring upon it. Verse 9, And the instant I speak concerning a nation and concerning a kingdom to build and to plant it, if it does evil in my sight so that it does not obey my voice, then I will relent concerning the good with which I said I would benefit it. Now, therefore, speak to the men of Judah and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, saying, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I am fashioning a disaster and devising a plan against you. Return now, every one, from his evil way, and make your ways and your doings good. The focus is on a nation. It's God's nation. It's Israel. That's not levied against them exclusively. But God does give us an understanding that even those whom he loves and even those whom he plants, they, if in pursuit of evil intentions contrary to his desire to bless them, will experience the repercussions of that. And it happens in a variety of ways. Some of you know that as World War 
too was beginning to close and it became obvious to the world that the Jewish nation had been devastated by genocide, eight million Jews exterminated, that there was a grant given, universally agreed upon, that they would come back to a land that was theirs. That was totally, awesomely scriptural. One nation out of those world councils began to set itself against Israel. There was an embargo and there was a blockade. Interestingly enough, I think you can predict, it was England. And as a result of what they were doing, which was prohibiting what had been permitted lawfully, globally, their powerful influence within the world system from that time forward diminished significantly. And it can happen to us presently. And it can happen to Canada, most certainly. There is a difference between a people that by and large have a heart for God and their government doesn't. And so I really want to be careful saying we do not know the heart of the Canadians in full. We just know that there's a church up there that's groaning based on what is an overt act of contention with those who desire to worship and raise their kids and influence their communities in the one true faith and in the one true God. And he is the God of Israel, and he is the God that desires to be God of all the nations. So I anchor you there. I would like to also take you to Isaiah, flipping back, going left, to Isaiah 45. And these are areas, again, that you can indulge in later. But 45, I'm going to pick it up in verse 9 of Isaiah. This is God speaking. Trudeau and the legislature may say, no, it's not. That's just a penned word or phrase, an assumption. It's God speaking. All scripture was given by God and is profitable for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. That's like me trying to argue with an editor that has signed off on an op-ed, and he says, this is my name. No, it isn't. He just wrote that. That's his name. That's his thoughts. Many people hang on the intelligence or ignorance of people who pen prose and opinions in newspapers and magazines. Woe to him who strives with his maker. Let the potsherds strive with the potsherds of the earth. Basically saying if you're a, if you're a pothead, potsherd, you strive with who's yours, but don't strive with me. I'm greater than that. That's the fragments, if you would, of what once was something that was perhaps marvelous, artistic, really fashioned. Shall the clay say to him who forms it, what are you making? Or shall your handiwork say, he has no hands. Woe to him who says to his father, what are you begetting? Or to the woman, what have you brought forth? I will cite that to say God's making through this prophetic utterance a distinction between not non-binary but binary. Both in this case very clearly citing Woman very clearly citing man, the begetting of children, and the ushering forth of a child. Two integral component parts of unique individuals, inarguably not transgender. Moving over to another page, Isaiah 46.10, if you'd turn there. But I'm going to pick it up actually in verse 8. Remember this and show yourselves men. Recall to mind, 
O you transgressors, remember the former things of old, for I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning. Hence, we will return to Genesis, which is the unfolding of the authorship of what we read as the Bible and the beginning of everything that we enjoy and everything that we are. And from ancient times, things that are not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand, and I will do all my pleasure, calling a bird of prey from the east, the man who executes my counsel from a far country. Indeed, I have spoken it. I will also bring it to pass. I have purposed it. I will also do it. Verse 12, listen to me, you stubborn-hearted who are far from righteousness. I bring my righteousness near, and it shall not be far off. My salvation shall not linger. I will place salvation in Zion, for Israel is my glory. It brings both to mind what God has allowed to happen to Israel, but what yet is going to be the future of Israel. In the same context, not switching Israel out for the church, but saying that we are to pray for Israel, which has become highly secularized, following a course of humanism, many things that they historically stand for, they've deviated. And as we've seen in the course of their history, we know that God's going to establish his kingdom there. But we also know that there's many more in the Jewish nation that the Lord is calling to himself. In the same context, there are many in this nation. There are many in Canada that the Lord is calling to himself. And that certainly is those who in the branch of civil peace and of legislating and who have been elected, he's calling to them. And he doesn't want anything less than their surrender and their obligation to govern people as his desire is to govern people. Move back to Genesis. We haven't been there This is where you'll probably have to take some notes. But I chose to come here because it really would be the opening. If, if I were a lawyer, I would come back to the point of beginning. I wouldn't start in the middle of the scene. I would actually lay a narration groundwork that would allow me to both defend or, if necessary, prosecute based on evidence. Remember, in this, it's more than faith. It's the fact that God has made revelation of himself. And when there's revelation of a person that can be substantiated by whom we know historically was satisfied in the life, in the death, in the resurrection of Jesus, it's pretty much a sealed text. It doesn't have opportunity to suffer under the persuasion of people who flippantly move their decisions this way or that way to satisfy either their ignorance or their prideful arrogance. Genesis begins in this light by proclaiming light. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God is making it clear that I did this. I did it. My name is God. In this study of God's name, Elohim, it is understood in Jewish theology as the triune God, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. We see evidence of this as it continues. The earth was without form and void, and it says, darkness was on the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And then God said, 
let there be light, and there was light, and God saw the light, that it was good, and God divided the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night, so the evening and the morning were the first days. This is the account of creation, which he is responsible for. But also, it does introduce himself not only as the author, but as the sustainer, or maybe, if you would, the creative imaginator. He thought of it all, and he performed it all. And he did so over what we would say a calamity that is evidenced between verses 1 and 2. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then what happens? The earth was without form, void. Darkness was upon the face of the deep. The waters were troubled. There was something cataclysmic that happened that required then God to move in and to do a recreative work. In one sense, we could say that calamity is upon us now. Some would say, well, no, it's just global warming. and It is a calamity and we need to remedy it by doing away with this, doing away with that, promoting such and such. But the reason that this is important right now as God articulates it is that he's identifying both who he is and that he desires to come in and what are the recoils of crises, of incidences, political turmoil, sinful, what you would call consequences. We know in the study of this, this very likely is describing the arrogant disposition of Satan, who was known as Lucifer, who was ousted from heaven with a third of the angels. We know them in scriptures as demons, and we notice that his name was changed from Lucifer to Satan. And he, in his fall from heaven, then came to earth by trajectory, it indicates he was thrown down like a lightning bolt. And he then, by persuasion and seduction, compelled two people the scriptures will cite as the creative punctuation of God's love in creating man and woman. We're not fully there yet, though. Let me continue. First thing to note, is that God identifies creation and he as the creator in verses 1 and 2. We also can see that in this, where the title cleverly was phrased, you are busted, buster. Follow the God of science. These are where the sciences are actually all introduced. Every single one of them and perhaps notable subcategories that come from them. I'm going to name them but not say they're conclusive. But I'll do that as we move through. So it'll render itself as really a long narration, and I'll interject as I believe it's appropriate. The day has been named because of light, and the evening has been cited because of darkness. God called the light day, the darkness he called night, so the evening and the morning were the first day. And then God said, let there be a firmament in the midst of the waters and let it divide the waters from the waters. And thus God made the firmament and divided the waters which were under the firmament and from the waters which were above the firmament. And it was so, and God called the firmament heaven. And so the evening and the morning were the second day. This moves into both physics, which is the study of force, and particularly through matter and energy. Who's the force? God is. And what is the object of that force, this world? Not only that which we will begin to see taking formation as he, the Spirit of God moved upon the surface of the waters, but we're going to see high definition, way better than the TVs they're making today. So when we see that this is an acknowledgement of both creation, we see that this is an introduction of God, which we would call knowing God or the understanding of God, theology, 
We understand that physics is at play here, which is a science, force, and matter, and energy. We also can see where there is now a location that is called heaven. We see that it will be defined in a science that we call astronomy. We'll get into that because there's going to be some wonderful objects that the Lord will place in the sky. And astronomy is an astounding science. It is the study of both the transmission of light and space and the celestial bodies. We have them named. And if you want to, you can pay a company so you can have a star named after you. <clears throat> I haven't done that yet because I heard that God actually named all the stars. So who am I to come by and take credit? Let's continue to advance. With the waters and the firmaments being established, the waters under the heavens gathered together, it then moves to say, God called the dry land earth and the gathering together of the waters he called seas, and God saw that it was good. Astronomy has been cited. Hydrology has been cited. That's the science of water and the cycles of water. We have with that as well geology, which is the making of the earth and all that will be on the earth as sciences related to it. It says this as it moves forward. Let the earth bring forth grass and herbs that yield seed and the fruit trees that yields fruit according to its kind whose seed is in itself and on the earth. And it was so, and the earth brought forth grass, the herb that yields seed according to its kind and the tree that yields fruit whose seed is in itself according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. So the evening and the morning were the third day. And God said, let there be lights in the firmament of the heavens to divide the day from the night and let them be for signs and seasons and for days and for years and let them be for lights in the firmament of the heavens to give light on the earth. And it was so. And then God made two great lights, the greater light to rule the day, that's the sun, and the lesser light to rule the night. Those are both the stars and the moon. God set them in the firmament of the heavens to give light on the earth. Hydrology, astronomy, geology, the study of the earth, and botany, the vegetation, and of the trees. Pretty cool. Follow the science. The science has been declared just within these verses of the first chapter. God says in verse 20, let the waters abound with an abundance of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth and across the face of the firmaments of the heavens. So God created great sea creatures and every living thing that moves from which the waters abounded according to their kind and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good and God blessed them saying, be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters and the seas and let birds multiply on the earth. So the evening and the morning were the fifth day. God's actually defining right now what is in fact true, a binary system in the management of the procreation of life. Two unique animal beings, species that have been created to create their kind. Hence the science of zoology, the study of animal life. That's pretty cool. Just mentioned right here within the first chapter. But there's also some other things that are coming. Let's continue. The blessing of the birds on the earth, the evening and the morning closes the fifth day. And God says, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to its kind. It says cattle, creeping things and beasts of the earth each according to its kind, and it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to its kind. And it says, cattle according to its kind, and everything that creeps on the earth according to its kind. And God saw that it was good, and God said, let us make man in our image. So we've moved through component parts of what we would say the animal kingdom, 
but no less cited would be that which pertains to entomology, which is the science of insects, of study the creeping things. Quite a list of sciences mentioned here. As well, ichthyology. If you've noticed a word that in deeper understanding of doctrine, the ichthus, was the sign that the Christian church used in its early genesis. It was the fish symbol. It's called the ichthus. The study of fish or marine life is called ichthyology. And so the science of even fish, the oceans teeming with living things, cited here. As we move into what is a glorious statement, God placing a punctuation mark on his creation by creating man and woman, this is what the author of life and of the word says with regard to that. Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female. He created them. God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Verse 29 says, I've given these things to you, the herbs that yield seeds, which is on the face of the earth, every tree whose fruit yields seed to you, it shall be your food. Also to every beast of the field, to every bird of the air, to everything that creeps on the earth in which there is life, I have now given every green herb for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and indeed it was very good. So the evening and the morning, I'll get back to it, or the sixth day. That concludes right now what would be the science of God. Chapter 2 moves into a Zoom. You have Zoom meetings. This is God zooming in on how he now wants to celebrate what it is he did. As we move into that, we are talking about the governance of the earth, which he has already given to man and woman. What we see here is how God brought about both man and woman. In essence, we see human biology that's being described in chapter 2. Where is it important to probably tackle in just the minutes that remain? Probably right here. And it says this. I'm going to come to it. Verse 7. The Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground, breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. Emphasized in the close of chapter 1 was the fact that God established in the context of human biology a man first, and he would follow with a companion for Adam second, they would become plural as man. Not man and man, not woman and woman, man and woman. Adam would be given a federal headship with what we would know in the closure of chapter 2 as a marriage. The first one performed by God in the garden with blessings. I cite this very often in weddings because it's important to know that as Young marriages begin, they need to know, where did it start? Right here. It started right here with God, in a beautiful place. It continues to define that as man was created and brought into a flesh garden, which would be known as Eden, and then it describes all the things that Eden would have, and the responsibilities that Adam was assigned. It moves in this direction 
and I'll go down right now and put you at verse 15. The Lord God took the man, put him in the Garden of Eden to tend it and to keep it. This would be the science of industry. He'll become an agriculturalist. He will actually become in that place at that moment responsible for everything that we have already cited in the sciences. And he will become a husband and a father in the verses that follow. As he's doing what he has been commanded to do, one of his first industries, both in tending and keeping the garden, will be to name the animals of the kingdom, the animal kingdom, highly intelligent to do that. The Lord commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may eat freely, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. This was the first ordinance that was imposed upon Adam. It was the first spiritual ordinance that says, In order to keep and to have fruitful fellowship with me, this is what you may not do. Out of all the things that I've given you freely to do, this one thing you may not do. In the same sense, God has defined in the natural realm, which is highly spiritual to him, the things that we must not do. And what we must not do is try to change the definition of his created assignments, specifically in the area of marriage, specifically to not compromise in the institution of marriage, nor the church, nor to govern against anything that contradicts God. Adam had just one simple command of God. And the reason that he was given a choice is because that's what love not only allows, it's what love requires. To choose whom you will serve, how you will serve him in the manner that pleases him. God is love. Love is of God. And so God wants those things to be both built in integrity and maintained in society, all the way back in the beginning. That was God's intent. And so it says that from the ground, all of the beasts were filled. Again, this is microscopic. This is coming in on a Zoom. We already know that this happened. We're seeing how it happened. And as all these animals are being formed, Adam's assignment was to have them come. He was to call each living creature by its name and whatever he named them, they were called. Adam gave names to all the cattle, to all the beasts of the field, for Adam was not found, though for him it says a helper comparable to him. And it says the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam, and he slept. And he took one of his ribs, closed up the flesh in its place, and then the rib which the Lord God had taken from the man he made into a woman, and he brought her to the man." God is citing very clearly binary definitions of man and woman. When those who have said they are one over what they in fact were birthed as, when their flesh goes into the grave, and when it suffers corruption, any scientist will be able to take anything from what remains in the dust of the tissue of the bone and say, this was a woman, this was a man, and it doesn't matter how they dressed, and it doesn't matter what they proclaimed. That's the challenge to transgenderism. It's a choice that people are making, whether it's psychological, fine, but it is not justifiable to God. Does God love them? Absolutely loves Bruce Jenner. I think that Bruce Jenner was much more admired to me as an Olympian than he is as a transgender. It's not going to change the fact. When he stands before the Lord, which everyone will, he has no justification in what he's done. But the Lord has done something that gives him provision to stand even in that light and to be forgiven of that decision. It's an important concept to know. And we need to make testimony the fact that you don't have options that violate God's integrity. It's crazy. It's insanity. It's foolishness for the 
pot to say to the potter, this is what I will be. This is whom I shall be called and noted as. I've never, I'm not even going to go there. I'm not. But Adam says to this, and mind you, verse 18, I hopped over it. God says, it's not good that man is alone, and I will make him a helper comparable to him. In similitude, but completely unique, purpose to be a helper, as a man also helps in that relationship of marriage. Adam says this, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, she should be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother, shall be joined to his wife. They shall become one flesh. And it says they were both naked, and the man and his wife were not ashamed. It doesn't say they were both confused. It doesn't say they were both one or the other. They were both uniquely what God had purposed for them to be, a man and woman, perfect fellowship, with God without need of anything but to remain in the fellowship of God. I close there because in this narration of both chapter 1 and chapter 2, it really does define everything that can be substantiated scientifically. And in the close, I want to also be able to say that with that, chapter 3 cites another thing that is worthy of consideration because after Adam did disobey, and it appears by Eve's deception, they changed the paradigm of God's paradise, where man was spiritual and personable and in bodily perfection, carnality then prevailed, and the body became the subject of changing what it wanted for itself. The personality would then take on its own attributes contrary to what God desired, and the body then would also be subject to demise, ultimately death. That's the stage we're in. Except by the mercies of God, His grace, and His provision to be forgiven, we can be transformed. And so the closing thoughts for you on what chapter 3 encapsulates is simply this. Again, the science follow the God of science. Chapter 3 deals with spirituality, which becomes corrupt. Sociology, which is the pattern. Once Adam and Eve began to have children, the science of sociology kicked in. How do people get along? What is it they do as they move along? The imposter religion, secularism, meaning the removal of the influence of religion, criminology. There's going to be murder now that takes place that will require jurisprudence, an exercise of punishment upon those that violate the sacredness of life by taking someone's life. Humanism, ignoring the divine supernatural influence of God and his protocols. Atheism, the disbelief in God, all packed into chapter 3 until the world in and of itself through the agency of men who no longer wanted God because they were no longer taught about God, no longer responsive to the convictions of their heart by what it is they could see. God was always there for them. The Lord would do what? He would bring about a flood. He would take 120 years for that judgment to pend until the only ones left to respond was the one family in which one man who found the grace of God and whose eyes God was upon would save his family. That was Noah. It's a fact. There was an ark. And the rest of this story is God's story to this present day. Does this address fully the concerns that right now Canada is appealing for? Well, it's my take on what we do. We come back to the beginning and we substantiate everything with regard to God's sovereignty. God will act on his behalf regardless of man's behavior. We need to stand in solidarity with those who are suffering legislatively. We need to be praying for those 
who come into government to be those who want to be governed by God and are ambassadors and representatives of God. We need to look at where they're coming from when the voter pamphlets come out. We need to be very careful that we're not politically motivated, but we're spiritually highly educated on voting those who vote the conviction of their heart based on a godly understanding that is true and irrevocable. Those are the times we're in. That's the way that I chose to address the message today with regard to everything that's essential to know about God and his authorship and his plan and his governance over the sciences. They're all presented here. So even those who have now moved towards accommodating, in my opinion, the unnecessary biological trickery that is going on, they're going to be accountable too. They may have a skill to remove parts, but they do not have the skill to remove chromosomes and DNA and RNA. They cannot change that. But God can change the person that has chosen to be persuaded by humanism and secularism and a lack of true understanding in spirituality of God. And so we want to be those. We had a visitation by one, and I remember this person, and this person was not a he, but no longer was it evident that she was a she. But in the message that I taught, she broke down. She left, I remember greeting her at the door, and she came back, and I thought, ooh, this is gonna be a tangle. She actually just wanted to be prayed for. One of the phrases I used in that teaching was caught between a rock and a hard space. So when I went back there with John, this woman who had changed, transgendered hormonally, broke down and cried and said, I am that person, and I don't know what to do. I don't know how I can possibly go back. I said, well, we can pray for you. And the decision still is yours to make because you can still be whom God has made you. And it'll be difficult, but it'll be right. Never saw them again because of choice to not turn and such a body alteration that probably it was truly a rock and a hard space.